What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are going to spend this hour doing election coverage, starting with San Francisco. We're joined this morning by Joe Eskenazi, managing editor and columnist at Mission Local, was named 2019 Journalist of the Year by the Northern California branch of the Society of Professional Journalists. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Kat. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. I mean, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like it was a big night for London Breed uh, with her candidates looking like they're winning across the board, yeah? Yes, uh, I would have to say that the voters gave London Breed much, if not all, of what she wanted, uh, but perhaps what uh, she most wanted she did not get, uh, and that was uh, the, the bitter pill of being given an extra year in office, uh, but then having to run in 2024 instead of 2023. Uh, so it's, it's, I don't know, the, the analogy that comes up in my head, Kat, is that you won a big game, but your quarterback was taken off the field in a stretcher. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, the next thing is no laughing matter. Uh, you and I follow each other on Twitter, so you uh, know where I sit with this one. Uh, the district attorney's race. It looks like Brooke Jenkins is going to be now an elected uh, district attorney of the city. Joe, given the scandal after scandal after scandal, like legitimate violations uh, of of her her office. Are you surprised that she won? I, I thought that maybe that, that might have tanked her a bit. I, I wasn't, and I never expected the stories that I reported and others reported to move that needle. Um, because, you know, uh, among other things, you know, without without disrespect to Joe Aliota Varanez and John Hamasaki as lawyers and as men, they are not quality candidates. And, you know, it's one thing to say, I don't like Brooke Jenkins, and it's another thing to say, I don't like Brooke Jenkins and I'm going to vote for her opponent. And, uh, and and that just didn't seem to happen. Uh, plus, you know, I mean, the, the mood of the voters is hard to gauge. Uh, on, on the one hand, there was uh, some, some, some rage and anger, but on the other hand, there was, there was um, that didn't translate across the board. In candidate races, it seems to have, though. Say more about why Hamasaki and Alioto are not quality candidates. Uh, you know, Joe Aliotto Varanez runs uh, every so often, and, you know, the, the, he seems to, to run a bit, and he doesn't win, and he doesn't place, and he doesn't show. And, and Hamasaki, again, I don't want to impugn uh, them as, as, as people and as, and, as, and as lawyers, but as candidates, John, John Hamasaki probably started out in the hole with, with the voters that did know who he was, um, his combative online persona and, um, and, and you know, um, uh, somewhat raucous bearing during police commission meetings uh, probably alienated more people uh, than they engendered. And that's among the people who knew him. So, you know, uh, if you have low uh, voter ID and the people who know you don't like you, uh, that's a bad place to start. Yeah, I I, I actually was surprised uh, about how poorly Alioto did. And it was because I looked at... His platform. And I was thinking, you know, most voters are moderate. And at least how he presented himself, it looked like he was saying enough of the things folks like me wanted to hear and enough of the things that some of the more law and order residents of San Francisco wanted to hear. And so I thought maybe his in the middle between Brooke and, and Hamasaki might have played well for him, but does well, not Canada look like that happened. Lab. Yeah. I mean, like if, if you just ran position statements, he'd have done well. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah. but, you know, I mean, I don't think that. 
I mean, Jenkins did fine. Uh, you know, it doesn't want to make, I don't make a sour grapes, but it, you know, it was, it, it's a good showing, you know, but it's the good showing you would expect against, you know, lackluster competition in a very quick race. Uh, after she, you know, she was the figurehead of a successful recall. And I, I don't think that, um, even if I wanted to, I don't think it would be fair to say that, you know, she's had enough time to solve the problems that, that, um, that drove uh, Chase Boudin out of, out of power. Uh, I, I think that we can look at things and say, um, here's the attempts thus far, but we can't say you've had your three months, you know, what have you got to show for it? No, but we can talk about the policies that she's talked about, including charging teenagers. There's the war on drugs 2.0. There's mm-hmm. a dismantling of every progressive element of the district attorney's office. There's a cozy relationship with the San Francisco Police Association. I mean, I think we know what her four years, or is it four years? Her term is going to look like. No, no, she only has, she gets to run again next year. <laughs> she gets to run again <laughs> next year. Uh, and that's, okay. you know, uh, you know, Kat, you've followed politics for a long time. You've been in politics. And so when a politician says, I'm exhausted, I need to spend time with my family, uh, you usually know that this is, this is a disingenuous thing to say. I have to say that when Chase Boudin declined to run again in November and, and used this as an excuse, it was the first time I ever thought, well, that, that makes sense. You know, I mean, he, he was... Um, yeah. He, he was uh, receiving, you know, um, vast amounts of uh, of scrutiny and, and pressure and, you know, was the subject of a recall campaign. And then if he had run again uh, for this election, he would then have to run again next year. So be, there would be no let up whatsoever. So, you know, I, yeah. I you know, uh, whatever, whatever people have asked me, do you think that he regrets that he didn't run considering, uh, you know, the, the stories that have come to light on Brooke Jenkins? And I don't know, but I do understand the rationale for him not running. And, uh, if that was his true rationale, that actually made sense. You know, a a person's got to live. (laughs) Yeah, no. And, and, and I, you know, I consider Tessa a friend and I, I, I was one of the people that asked him to run again, and I, I, I get it too. It's exhausting running for office and, and having y- your persona and your character torn apart every day mm-hmm. uh, across social media, right? And and, and mainstream media is, is hard. Um, talk to me about the board of supervisors race. Former SFPD communications officer Matt Dorsey. Uh, replacing Matt Haney, who was much more to the left than Dorsey. What does this mean in terms of the makeup of the Board of Supervisors and what leverage, if any, does it give Breed? Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, I mean, certainly this is the race that caught me the most by surprise. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I managed to, to set the table decently in, in some of the stuff I wrote, but this one really caught me by surprise. I wouldn't have been surprised if either Honey Mahogany or Matt Dorsey won, but the way this is setting up as a romp for Matt Dorsey, it's just not something I foresaw. Uh, and that could be because of the quality of the campaigns. Uh, it could be because the constituency is different after District 6 was changed during redistricting in a bitterly contested process that uh, excised the tenderloin um, and put it into District 5. So to answer your question about the balance of power, um, this is going to be an interesting one. Um, I, you know, certainly Matt Haney was the biggest thorn in the side of London Breed to the point where even bringing him up to her staff could get them to yell at you on the phone because, because he, whatever <laughs> Matt, uh, London Breed did, um, you know, Matt Haney would be there to be uh, a thorn in her side when it looked like that he was gearing up to run for yeah. mayor. When he was running for assemblyman, he tacked closer to the mayor, and he, I wouldn't say he was an ally, but, you know, he was, he was not being um, 
there was not a performative uh, obstinacy that there was before, uh, for good or ill, right? So uh, Matt Dorsey, uh, with a career in communications and as the mayor's appointee, um, uh, was portrayed uh, by those who wished to portray him in a negative light as, you know, a supplicant. Uh, I don't think that's entirely fair. I think that now that he's won, um, uh, or it seems very much to be winning his own election, uh, I think I think we get to see what Matt Dorsey really is all about. So uh, I, I don't expect him to take marching orders, uh, even though uh, hilariously on the nose when my reporter asked him yesterday what where he would be campaigning, he looked over his shoulder at uh, at Brooke Jenkins and others and said, I, I go where they tell me to go, <laughs> which <laughs> is not what I would have suggested him to say, right? But didn't seem to matter. So to answer your question, like, it depends. It really does depend. Um, it depends on how things turn out in District 4, you know, where Gordon Marr is in a real battle against Joel Guardio. And, you know, uh, it remains to be seen how those um, controversially redrawn uh, district lines come into play. I would say that the supervisors who are coming up for election next time around um, are not super secure. <laughs> all right. You you all, because you've got journalistic uh, in- integrity, I don't necessarily have to have. Uh, <laughs> you all call them recalls. I call them coups. And the first coup that happened in San Francisco before Chesa was the removal of the three school board members, Allison Collins, Gabriela Lopez, and Fuaga Maliga. Um, and, and then Brooke, uh, uh, London Bree got to appoint three folks. Looks like two of the three have secured their seats while one is still sort of up in the air. Walk us through. I would say in Sherwood too. And, and that was the thing where, um, this one is concerning because, uh, the first two, um, you know, uh, were unobjectionable and they even got endorsed by, you know, uh, lefty outfits that, that, you know, including, I believe, the teachers' union, for that matter. And so, but Ann Shu, um, who was a, a pivotal player in the recall, uh, essentially, without being provoked, uh, claimed that the poor performance of black and brown students was largely due to their to their families and, you know, um, and their bad home lives, which is something that, you know, I don't have to tell you that, that black people have been told for a long time. And, you know, it rankles. And, uh, and again, this was not a gotcha. This was someone writing down and sending in a questionnaire to a sympathetic um, uh, group. So it was the ultimate political malpractice. Uh, but it doesn't seem to have mattered. Um, I, I think you could conjecture what would happen if <laughs> if a candidate wrote similar things about Asians or Jews. Uh, I, I think well, that it did uh, happen. The, the, yes, it did, and and in fact, uh, all of the allies came out and asked that person to resign. Uh, that didn't right. happen here. <laughs> so, um, but but even then, the, the analogy this this was this was in some ways. How can I say this wasn't this wasn't a, a an angry tweet. This was something that was, you know, calmly written down and sent into a candidate questionnaire. So so that, you know, it's 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 not like it was taken out of context. <laughs> it was very clearly, you know, when asked why do black and brown people do poorly, you know, um, poor home lives was put very high. And that person um, and she seems to be doing just fine. She's seven thousand votes ahead of the number four vote getter. Uh, I, I would say, you know, um, there are lots of lessons to get from this, but I would say the people who weren't going to vote for her didn't vote for her, and the people who were going to vote for her didn't seem to mind. Uh, and if you're going to insult a racial group in San Francisco, I think it's probably best to insult black people because there's so few of them, and uh, and the repercussions appear not to be very dire. I mean, that's true, even where there are black people, right? That anti-blackness mm-hmm. is sort of an accepted 
trend in in this country. Joe, my my last question for you uh, is your thoughts on what appears to me. I mean, I don't live in San Francisco, but I do you know do work across the bridge. A, a split. Uh, by the city from San, uh, from progressive politics. I mean, at one point, folks would have said this is the most progressive city um, in the country, and it looks like the fear mongering around crime and black people and Hondurans, thanks, Breed, uh, etc., is is prevailing over what would have been values, you know, of of equity. Not that it was a perfect city, but, but some of this is is really really concerning. I think you. I think that San Francisco's progressivism has always been overstated, and I think that, um, uh, you know, I mean, even even under progressive district attorneys, uh, you know, the only black neighborhood left in San Francisco was the jail. Uh, I think that, you know, this doesn't need to be told to people who are living that life. And, and um, so I think the progressivism is overstated, and I think the break from progressivism is overstated. Well, like I was telling you, uh, in some senses, that the candidates espousing, you know, uh, tough-on-crime rhetoric did win, but an angry voting populace would have behaved, you know, just acting out of pure spite, would not have approved the um, beneficial social taxation measures, essentially, that we did, which which was yeah. a surprise to me, not only a surprise to me, but a surprise to the people who were running those campaigns, one of whom told one of my reporters that he had to keep reading over the results because he thought he'd misread it, and he, for some reason he gets his results in Spanish on his phone, and he thought he'd obviously screwed it up. But, you know, um, the tax here that funds transit, um, it needed two-thirds. It was polling at about 60. It got about 68. So, you know, this, this is not the same as the racial dynamics that you mentioned. But in some ways, um, there is a break in San Francisco where the Aravistes and the, and, the, and the wealthy people who are coming in don't give a damn about transit or schools, for that matter, because they don't use them, right? But so, so a lot of those people wouldn't vote for that. But it appears this passed, and it passed, you know, uh, you know with some comfort. Uh, after being rejected hard, uh, a similar measure in June uh, on the same ballot as the Boudin recall, so that's yeah. it's it's hard to say, Kat. It's hard to get. It's hard to grasp why the voting body did some things that that appear, at least at first blush, to to not be intuitive and to be in some ways even a little bit contradictory. It, it's hard to have an overarching mindset uh, on on this on this vote. <laughs> Yeah, similar things are happening in Oakland, so it will definitely be worth a deeper dive analysis uh, when it's finally over. Well, I, I suggest, Joe. you know, uh, to plug uh, Admission Local, um, our data guy, Will Jarrett, is going to pour through it today, yes. and I'm interested to Great. see what correlations he can find. Right on. Well, I follow you all, so I will be looking for that. Joe Eskenazi, thank you so much for your reporting and for joining us. Thank you kindly, Ken. Joe, Joe Eskenazi is managing editor and columnist at Mission Local. He was named the 2019 Journalist of the Year by the Northern California Branch of Society of Professional Journalists. All right. We are going to turn our attention now to my city, the elections in Oakland, California. We are joined this morning by council member Carol Fife, who's a longtime community organizer and my council member. She represents District 3. She was elected in 2020. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. And we are also joined by Bobby Lopez-Cade, part of the Oakland Progressive Alliance, and who was also the former policy director for City Council President Rebecca Kaplan. Good morning, Bobby. Good morning. Thank you, Bobby. I know you just got off a, a, a plane, <laughs> so we are super appreciative uh, of you being with us. And Councilmember Fife, I know that it was a long night for you, so thank you uh, for you being with us uh, early this morning as well. Okay. Uh... 
Oakland has ranked choice voting. We have gone through nine rounds of RCV, which right now has Lauren Taylor with, I think, around 52% of the vote, Shang Tao trailing at 49% of the vote. Is it over? Council Member Fife, we'll start with you. In a short uh, answer, uh, no, it it is not over. There are more ballots to be counted. Uh, We can get into the numbers. I'm still trying to comb through all of the numbers. Uh, from last night, but um, there are still <laughs> ballots to be counted, as we all are. Anyone who's paying attention, yeah. this is a, a monumental time in the city of Oakland with the shift in, in power right now, if there is to be a shift. And um, I think we're all still paying very close attention, and, and um, we're not calling the races just yet. Uh, Bobby Lopez Cade, quick and dirty explanation for my listeners because I do think it's it's confusing to people. Every election, people are like, "RCV, what?" Break down wh- how RCV works and why. Um, even though we've gone through nine rounds, that perhaps uh, you know the the fat lady hasn't sung yet. Well, yeah, I mean the RCV. I mean, there's still so many more ballots to count. Um, you know, based on past elections. I mean, we could be dealing with 80,000 more ballots, 100,000 more ballots. Uh, I think everyone's waiting to get information from the Department of Elections to really get a sense of how many ballots are left to count. And, you know, there are variations. They're not always great, but it could vary from district to district, precinct to precinct. Um, and, you know, ranked choice voting is something that we've had in place for a while here in Oakland. Uh, we use it for mayoral, but we also use it for our, our districts. Um, and, our, um, and I think it's a really, you know, good way for making sure that, um, you know, we're choosing candidates in a way that, you know, people have more than one choice to select a candidate. And we actually did something very interesting this cycle because typically Oakland can choose up to three candidates. Now we've gone up to five candidates. So we're in a very different cycle. Um, and, you know, the RCV for the, the mayor's race is, you know, I, I, I would say we have too many ballots to call. But the way that they're breaking are definitely not with this round. And I think we'll have a better sense in future rounds. I wouldn't say they're necessarily breaking for for Shang, but you know, again, we still have to see the next couple of rounds. Even our progressive candidates, we had other progressives in the race. Um, you know, um, like Greg Hodge. I'd argue Greg Hodge's votes are going more to Lauren Taylor. Um, Alyssa Victory yeah, has the highest rate of transfer at about forty-seven percent, but a lot of her voters, you know, you know, chose a lot of other candidates as well. So. Um, yeah, I think Shang right now has a number two problem, but we have to see how many more number ones come in. Let's talk about. Uh, I want to. I want to play what if uh, and and get, uh, Council Member Fife. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with you. So, what if things continue to to break for Lauren, um, but then also in the city council races continue to break for the progressives? Looks like we're we're basically going to have the same dynamic we had with Libby, right? A, a Lauren is Libby's candidate, um, but B it would also mean a continuation, basically, of the fracture between council and um, and the mayor's office. Yeah, I will just say that. For me, as a council member, I'm willing to get out of um, my way without compromising my principles to work with individuals who want what's best for the city of Oakland. I found that to be very difficult with our existing mayor just because of inconsistencies and mistruths that um, were persistent in our engagement. So that was that was challenging for me. 
And I'm, I'm deeply concerned about that relationship continuing if um, Lauren does become mayor, because everyone knows, the Democratic Party knows, the tweet, well, the, the emails and the letters that went out to um, not support my candidacy for mayor, I mean, for, for council from the mayor. And that has been a theme throughout my tenure as a city council member. So I'm hoping that will change, but I'm not going to hold out hope. Um, but I am encouraged by the number of uh, individuals who have voted for council members in districts uh, four and six and the reelection of our council president, Nikki Fortunato Bath. I think we have a, a, yeah. a base that we can work with on the council. Yeah, I, I was, you know, Nikki's race, I, I was holding my breath around that one because uh, it looked like this guy, Harold Lowe, who sort of came out of nowhere, um, was able to gain some traction uh, in, inside of District 2, right? I mean, but there there was definitely a lot of misogyny and, and, and racism that I think Councilmember Bass uh, w- w- was dealing with. Um, Bobby Lopez, Cade, your thoughts about what a progressive council and a conservative mayor would mean. And, and am I right? This would be historic, right? The number of progressives that are sitting on council. You're right, Kat. We have definitely, it looks like we're uh, moving towards picking up one seat um, and having, you know, six, uh, definitely at least six out of the eight. That's pretty phenomenal. Um, and I'm really excited as the person who was running the, uh, you know, the Democratic Party's program. Uh, all of our endorsed candidates at the city council level who are, progressive, liberal, left-leaning are having commanding leads in their race. And I think even if 100,000 ballots came in, they, their leads would be hard to challenge. Um, and I would say that, you know, this is a lesson that we're going to see in the next 100 days of whoever wins. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of things that I had reflections of having worked inside of City Hall with uh, Mayor Schaaf. It just, you know, I worked I worked in San Francisco City Hall, so I com- I'm very comparative in the two city halls. And, you know, whatever people may say about progs and mods in San Francisco, on policy, on legislation, you still sat down and you worked through it. You figured it out. You may not agree, but you sat down. When I got to Oakland, I was shocked at the level of divisiveness, the, the kind of the inability to even talk to a department or uh, a city worker uh, without you know, the mayor kind of having a, a very strong reaction. And that sort of divisiveness does not create good policy. So I hope to God whoever wins this next cycle cannot continue that kind of climate. It's not good for Oakland. It's just not good for getting things done. Um, and, and there's going to have to be a major shift. I mean, this council can really, you know, shift and be very powerful. This is a historic moment, as you said. Um, you know, but the mayor is, this is a very mayor strong city. It's written in the charter that the, you know, city council cannot direct staff. It's, it's very mayor strong. And so I think that I hope we don't have a continuation of the next eight years, that the last eight years into the next eight years, because we can't afford to have another 130% increase in homelessness. We can't afford to fail to meet our affordable housing goals. Oakland doesn't deserve that. I mean, we can hope against hope. I'm looking at his track record over the last four yeah. years, and I woke up this morning, and one of yeah. the first things that I said was, wow, I thought that I was going to leave with Libby, but it looks like she's... Uh, to a question I want to ask you, uh, Council Member Five, talk about organizing, right? Like, you said you, you, you are a grassroots 
campaign running base building organizer that now is sitting in in the seat as a council member should this break the way it looks like it is taylor as mayor progressive council in a mayor strong city what is what does that mean that the call to the left the call of the people is what are what are the marching orders for folks that don't want to see another 130 percent increase um in, in our unhoused or the continuation of, of feeding a bloated police budget or those cranes that are now marching to East Oakland, as we talked about when, when we ran, uh, when we ran for mayor. I think what this means to grassroots organizers is that we have to get on the ground tougher than we have in the past. Um, not just for local politics, but, uh, in 2024, when I'm up for reelection, we will also have a presidential yeah. race. And we will see, I, I, I would almost guarantee, a, a huge shift to the right. We're seeing that happen in other Bay Area cities. Um, we just heard from your caller um, right before this segment that progressivism is not necessarily as um, identifiable in the San Francisco Bay Area or San Francisco specifically as we would like to think. So... We've got to be able to, to combat that. It's specifically around the areas of housing and addressing the, the crisis of homelessness um, in order to, to maintain our, our base here. So it's, we're going to have to double down, triple down on grassroots organizing to ensure that we do not become San Francisco's uh, little sister in the city of Oakland. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the challenge of the next couple of years because we're going to either all put it all on the line or we're going to all pack up and go. I, I want to talk about, uh, what is shifting here in Oakland, uh, and something I'm concerned about not, and you are both, um, women of color. So, but Bobby, I'm, I'm going to start with you. I mean, it is, concerning to me the the rhetoric that is on the socials from folks who, who live here um about about blackness the anti-blackness that we've seen um it is concerning to me that a poster with a noose that says whites only showed up uh near hyde park it is concerning to me that uh, we paid to be here it is time for the rest of you to go it feels to me that Oakland is not just breaking against, you know, right and left political ideology, but also along the lines of race and class, but but race a lot. Your thoughts? And then uh, Councilmember Fife, I'm going to turn to you to answer the same question. I mean, we're fighting for the soul of the city. I mean, that's what's happening right now. And we won some battles, and we still have to see how the other battles are going. But there's an issue at, at hand. You know, there's demographic changes um, that are really impacting and forcing out longtime members who are black, predominantly black longtime members. And I think that this is something that policy-wise, candidate-wise, we need to really focus on. I know council member Fife is going to talk about her work that she's doing on that. Um, but I'm also feeling that... You know, this is also a very interesting moment in that there's just so much anger and anxiety and stress and hardship. And I see I, I see a little less lack of empathy amongst my neighbors, amongst the community. Um, I see the sort of rhetoric that's harsh coming out, which is, you know, push out, you know, on how people, which is just not OK. It's not acceptable 
Um, but I do also want to have that hopeful moment by saying that the folks that pushed out that really harsh rhetoric this last cycle only got 3% of the electorate. So, so while it's out there and while it's toxic and while it feels like it's taking over Twitter, which it sure as heck has, just a reminder to ourselves that the, the, big, the biggest voice for that only got 3%. Um, and I'm still hopeful. I think if we go back to the bread and butter of our movement, which is, you know, knocking on doors, talking to neighbors, reconnecting, creating our networks again, we can get our city back. I do believe that to be possible, especially with the city council, especially with this new city council. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do. We can't sit this one out and we have to be even more active so that we don't become that sort of gentrified, post-gentrified city of like San Francisco that has uh, less and less black and brown people every day. Councilmember Fife, just one second. I want to bring into the conversation Tanya Love, a public health and policy professional addressing health disparities, the built environment, social justice. She's also Councilmember Carol Fife's chief of staff. Good morning, Tanya. Good morning. And I'm just going to repeat this question because I actually wanted to get your thoughts on on this too. And that is, uh, I express my concern that Oakland is not just breaking uh, or fracturing along left and right political ideologies, but also along the lines of race. Class two, but some of the white supremacist things that we, we've seen, the, there was just a, a, a noose that said, a, a poster with a noose that said whites only near Hyde Park. We did have the noose incident at Lake Merritt. The rhetoric uh, on, on, on the socials is violently anti-black are coming, um, are, are moving with a, a sense of entitlement. You know, this thought, well, we paid lots of money to be here. The rest of you need to go away. So Council Member Fife, your thoughts about What's happening in Oakland, birthplace of the Panthers, Chocolate City at one point. Um, gentrification is afoot for sure, but it seems the uptick in hate is high. I would that for oh, I, I would I would definitely pass this uh, question to Tanya. I have thoughts around it, but um, we've dealt in in my office with addressing some of the concerns around AAPI hate when they were first coming up, and we're concerned about the division that that was creating, um, especially since the first individual that was assaulted in Chinatown was not Asian. So, um, you know, Tanya, we've talked about it. We've talked about doing additional events to address gentrification and address this rise in hate overall. So I would love to get her in the conversation as well. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, definitely concerning. Um, I'm also um, concerned about this this kind of wave of anti-progressive or anti-wokeness that seems to be happening around those who claim that who are liberal but don't like the direction of progressiveness that's happening in city of Oakland. It's become very divisive on social media and particularly the next door commentators that I feel that kind of swayed us over to the, the Lauren Libby camp. And they have also fanned the flames on, you know, the real extremism that's happening. Whereas when we're looking at our anti, you know, Asian hate um, that's been happening, they've been blaming it on, you know, uh, woke candidates like um, Council President Bass and blaming it on, quote unquote, woke candidates, Council Member Fife. 
And so we really need to concern about those who claim that they are actually liberal but are helping to fan the flames of extremism. That's a huge concern for me. How do we address it? Well, I think we should remind them of the actual real disparities that are happening in Oakland in particular with black residents. Those are real ideal facts. And what Councilmember Fife has been trying to stress is that it's not just, well, it is, there is some extremism happening, but for those who are liberal, they keep forgetting that the actual negative consequences of our policies in Oakland are really felt by black and brown residents. We need to continue to remind them of that and that we need to really make policies that are livable for those who are at most at risk and not just you know, simple solutions, but long-term sustainable system change. Tanya Love, I'm going to backtrack to where we were just a, a little bit earlier in the interview. Mm-hmm. There, there's lots of folks, I'm sure, because um, I was one of them, <laughs> that woke up <laughs> this morning and saw that we've gone through nine rounds of RCV. Uh, Lauren Taylor is about hovering around 52%. Uh, Shang Tao is hovering around 49%. Who threw up our hands and went... Lauren's our next mayor. Why may that not be true? And where are you sitting uh, with what the returns are looking like as of 841 this morning? I'm a little like I'm like um, I'm optimistic for Shane's chances, though. I, I think Bobby was correct in that we don't know how many of the votes cast for um, Alyssa Victory and Hodge are going to go. Um, there seems to be that's the question and we also don't know how many more ballots there are left to be um, counted from those who postmarked their ballots on november 7th and those who postmarked ballots on november 8th what we do know is how many have been turned in so far but there's still many that are still in the mailing system that needs to come in and so that is still up in the air of how many of those votes were first for first place votes for Shane or how many of those votes were first place votes for Lauren and then the RCD count going there. I mean, everyone says that those who mail in um, are more liberal or more Democrat. And so there is still hope for um, um, Shane Tao to pull it through. But, you know, I'm a little bit bummed like the rest of everyone else that's so, that he won so large a majority yeah. at first. Yeah. Uh, we also played Tanya Love uh, uh, a what if game, right? So what if things mm. continue to break the way they're breaking? We end up with Lauren Taylor as the mayor, but we also end up with a very progressive, historically progressive block on city council. What are the opportunities and challenges you see that lie ahead should this be the outcome? Well, the opportunity is great because like um, the other commentator said, um, we have a real great progressive group that are might be coming in and Kevin Jenkins and Janani Ramachandran. Um, so what, what can happen is if we continue to develop relationships with those two council members and, and, um, appeal to their progressive, you know, I, um, motivations and trying to get them to pass these really great progressive policies coming through from council member five in the next couple of years, I mean, it could be a great win. The challenge is, is Lauren Taylor's yes and um, (laughs) campaign where he's saying, well, yes, we should, um, when it comes to public safety, we should um, make sure that we focus on alternatives to policing like macro and Department of um, 
violence prevention, but he's also saying, and we should have more police. I believe he's one of those candidates that signed that 900. 900. Pledge. <laughs> so that's the concern is that where will he really truly land? Is he more on the enforcement side or is he really looking at alternatives? And I think he's really more on the enforcement side that he's willing to let on, especially if he's really uh, 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 closely tied with uh, Mayor Schaaf. And so that is going to be the challenge is how do we navigate his yes and and where where will he truly land when it comes to making the decisions? And a, one way to really look at that is looking at what his budget proposal will be in the coming months. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we know where, where Lawrence sits. I'll just remind listeners of the reimagined, yeah. uh, reimagined Public Safety Task Force where he weaseled his way into being uh, the, the co-chair with Councilmember Bass and then tanked the entire process intentionally. So uh, we, we know what he's going to do there. I, yeah, I, and his executive I, I, I orders want, are... Con- go ahead. His executive orders that he was talking about that he's going to immediately increase warrant officer capacity through partnerships with other law enforcement agencies, that he's going to deploy tools that augment surveillance monitoring and investigation capacity and saying that he's not going to allow the privacy commission to become a bottleneck. And then, so those two, those two bullet points where he said that he's going to take executive action on is something we have to really be careful and watch. I, I, I want to talk about Janani for a second because um, mm-hmm. she, folks are billing her as a progressive. Um, but when it comes to public safety, I mean, I looked at her platforms. She she and, and she has to play. I mean, D4, right? They are a law and order a bunch up there in the hills. Um, mm-hmm. she, she Her platform was unapologetically funding more police um, mm-hmm. and, and investing in policing. You, you think we're going to have alignment with her once elected around some of the public safety, um, the evolving of public safety that many of us on this call want to do? Yeah, that's that's a good question because we don't know what her voting pattern is right now. We know what she says. And, you know, she ran as an assembly member, um, really, really progressive. But as in a council yeah. person, she seems to be listening to um, the voters in her district. So um, until that actual really challenging vote comes, we don't know where she's going to land. We're going to hope and pray and we're going to work with her uh, and see, you know, uh, work with her to look at some more progressive values in that. But we won't know until the actual time for her to make a decision where she's going to land. Councilmember Fife, uh, Kevin Jenkins, the new mm-hmm. face. I'd never heard of him before. What do we know about him and what are we hopeful about? Well, I was familiar with Kevin Jenkins. Uh, he is an elected official for the uh, Peralta Board of Trustees okay. uh, in Alameda County. And so he has experience. And I, I remember talking to him during the campaign and he was concerned that uh, the people running in the race didn't know what a consent calendar was. And so I, I do know that he has some experience. I know that um, there was a very contentious relationship between the sitting uh, council member, uh, council member Taylor and uh, uh, Mr. Jenkins. 
And I, I hope that that doesn't carry over because once again, we don't want a city where the city council is not able to have a relationship with the mayor. Whomever it is, right. we will have to hold accountable. I don't care who is sitting in that seat. And so it's, it's um, imperative that we do our due diligence and have a relationship with, with Kevin Jenkins, have a relationship with John Anir, whomever are the incoming council members, so that we can build a stronger Oakland. It serves no one for the mayor to be oppositional to the council. And that's what we've dealt with for the last eight years. And, you know, it, it, it does a disservice to the residents of Oakland. So I'm looking forward to building relationships with the incoming council members to do just that, to build bridges between districts so that we don't have to funk like we are on separate turfs or, um, you know, just to be able to have civil conversations where council members are calling each other back because quite frankly, a, a lot of my texts and phone calls have gone unanswered to our East Oakland council members and that needs to stop. So I'm excited about a, a, a change in the guard for uh, District 6, and I welcome Kevin Jenkins with open arms if he does become the next city council member. Yeah, I cheered just a little bit when I saw those numbers. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what the brother delivers to. Um, Bobby Lopez-Kate, I think you're the only person that I can actually throw this question to without putting uh, Tanya and Kevin or Fife in an uncomfortable position. Treva was Lauren's comrade in arms. That, like they rocked tough together. Um, Lauren's not on the council anymore. Progressive block, possibly, probably on the council. Where does this leave Treva? I mean, I think this is going to be a new council, and there's going to have to be a scramble. I think we're still trying to figure out a little bit more about John and Ian Kevin. But again, I got to spend some time with them campaigning with the party, and you know, Kevin focuses on affordable housing and. You know, Johnny, you does have a background in tenants' rights. So, you know, my hope is that if this is a left-leading council, it pulls Treva in, in that direction as well. Um, because you don't want to become the isolated council member. Um, and right now, there is that dynamic where that could happen um, if she doesn't uh, rethink, you know, how to move forward in this <laughs> process. Um, or, you ha or people may try to create new alliances, right? Um, but either way, I think that this is a positive for the council. Um, I think if I were staffing or working with Treva, I would have her rethink, you know, those relationships that uh, Council Member Fife just referenced, you know, because you want to be productive. You want to deliver for your district. And like I said, collaboration is, is key regardless, you know. All right, ladies, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. We've been speaking to Councilmember Carol Fife, longtime community organizer. She represents District 3. Tanya Love, public health and policy professional addressing health disparities, the built environment and social justice. She's also Councilmember Fife's chief of staff and Bobby Lopez-Cade, a part of Oakland Progressive Alliance and is the former policy director for City Council President Rebecca Kaplan. We will be circling back to Oakland elections next week on Law and Disorder. I do just want to read before we hop into our resistance and residents, I got a text from uh, my friend, my sister, uh, Oakland artist and entrepreneur extraordinaire, uh, Ryan Nicole, who says, we have to stop voting for everyone black without doing the work to determine if they are actually pro-black. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. 
That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. 